Hello everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. Today I'm struggling a little because it's summer and flowers are getting to my nose and ruining my brain but I'm gonna try and record something that I've been wanting to record for a while because I always seem to find myself mentioning this book uh, specifically when I look at like introduction texts uh, like Silver Ravenwolf for example I always compare them to this and I have realised I haven't read this in a really long time and the book I'm referring to is The Real Witch's Handbook, A Complete Introduction to the Craft by Kate West and this came out in 2001 so I feel very old right now because I bought this hot off the presses in shops and it was my first book on Wicca that I ever purchased with my own money and for the longest time it was kind of my bible on all things I kept it on my shelf I reread it quite a lot uh, but then I got rid of it because obviously it's an intro book I found I hadn't read it for a while and I had to buy back a copy in order to reread it for this review now I have to admit that having reread it there are some things in there that I was surprised at seeing because I couldn't remember them being in there or hadn't really thought about them much obviously when I read it through uh, the first couple of times when I was a lot younger but there's a lot of things in there that I don't necessarily agree with now and that have a lot in common with uh, To Ride a Silver Broomstick and other Wicca 101 books that I've looked at uh, none too favourably in the past. There are also some good bits which I'm going to be discussing. I'd like to preface this with a warning. I'm sorry if I end up on a soapbox for this but I went to update my Goodreads profile because I've been a good girl and I've been reading all my books and I'm doing the challenge which I've changed to make it easier, but shush, I'm, I'm doing it, and found a review for this book, which was literally like four feet long. If I'd have printed it out, it would have been four feet long, and was written by what I can only assume is some sort of frothing-at-the-mouth maniac, because, I mean, they had just shot off on a tangent, and uh, I'm going to address some points in that as I go through this, because I felt like a lot of them were very wide of the mark. For starters, and this is something that I just wanted to talk about at the top, they took a hit at the title for about two different paragraphs because it's called The Real Witch's Handbook and Kate West wrote a series of books. So you've got The Real Witch's Handbook, The Real Witch's Craft, Kitchen, Garden, Bathroom, Study, Snug? I don't know. There's quite a lot of them. I think I have The Real Witch's Coven and The Real Witch's Year somewhere on my shelf. I know I have read The Real Witch's Craft because I really liked that book and, and the exercises in it when I was uh, sort of starting to work with visualisations. But this one is called The Real Witch's Handbook. And the person who wrote the very long review, which I didn't read all of because frankly, here was the time, um, took a swipe at the fact that it's The Real Witch's Handbook, as in there is a real way to be a witch, or a proper way, a true way, and everyone else is doing it wrong. Which is not what the book is about. Anyone who's read it would be able to tell you this, that quite a lot of the first part of it deals with misconceptions that people have about witches. And that's because this book came out in the very early 2000s when people didn't really know that much about Wicca. Now there's probably a lot more people who do know about it because it's been talked about more, there's more people practicing it more openly. But back then people had a lot of misconceptions about witches. And so by calling it the real witch's handbook, it's not about how to be a real witch. It's just marking out the difference between people who actually practice witchcraft and all the stuff in horror films and propaganda that have, has come before. So with that over and done with, I don't know a huge amount about Kate West. I did see her speak once at Witchfest International, I think about three or four years ago. I was a teeny bit disappointed because I don't know if it was just like an off day, but she, she was a little bit, it wasn't the most engaging talk that I'd been to that day, which was quite disappointing. But 
I quite like Kate West as an author and I do like the way she writes in that it's quite down to earth and practical which is probably why her book is a third of the length of some of the other ones I've looked at because she just gets down to it and just talks to you like a person. Now my first point about the book is just something funny that I noticed and it's on page seven, no I can't read Roman numerals, page eight of the introduction and it says in the second paragraph thanks largely to the world wide web and the internet as if those are two separate things because this book is nearly 20 years old and it, it's talking about technology and things is a little bit dated so bear with it but in the same paragraph it does say as a result more and more people of all ages and occupations and of both sexes are becoming interested in witchcraft or the craft which i think is nice because it does acknowledge that men are also interested in this stuff and this book is basically it, although it sticks to the gender binary because it's 20 years old but although it sticks to the gender binary both genders do feel equally welcomed in the book i feel like if i was a guy reading this there's nothing in here that is just women only or, or shuts men out of the experience of being a witch it's very much balanced in that sense so that's quite enjoyable chapter one is witchcraft the myths and it talks about the myths and misconceptions that people have about witchcraft now there were some things in this that um aggravated me a little bit is that the right way to say i was slightly disappointed by some of the viewpoints in the book because they seemed quite dated and that's obviously no surprise but it just sort of made it jump out to me how far witchcraft has come since since this book uh, so we'll go in on page three it says that it's talking about the background and history of the craft but then it goes back to pre-christian times and this was a sort of common thing that i've obviously come across in a lot of wicca 101 books the, the wicca and slash witchcraft because this book does also the, do that thing where it conflates the two which i'll talk about in a moment is some sort of forgotten system that's been around for donkey's years and i feel like a lot of people now just don't believe that but at this time people did buy into that whole idea that gardner had rediscovered something instead of inventing something based on a large number of sources some of which were fictional but she mentions that there were different nature based beliefs uh, based around the phase of the moon etc and then says Different groups held different beliefs and worshipped different gods and goddesses without conflict as far as we know. Christians did not invent religious conflict. There, there has always been conflict between groups of people who are different because that's what people are like, because we're bastards essentially. But I refuse to believe that everyone, even in England, was living in perfect harmony and, and religious niceties. Mainly, mainly me was a reduction in conflict because we didn't go anywhere we just stayed in our villages but i, I seriously doubt that there was no uh, religious friction between different groups and different beliefs she does sort of not just put this into christianity by saying at the bottom of the page that after the reformation one part of the church sought to outlaw and eradicate another and that um, there has been conflict between muslims and uh, jews over israel so there is this kind of like broadening it out into different religious things but i feel like most of the blame is leveled at christianity however i will say that it is not as violently negative towards christianity as some of the other books that i've looked at silver raven wolf i'm looking at you on page four we get that same old uh sort of mantra of i guess 90s paganism which was 
Uh, those who did wish to continue to follow the old religions did so secretly. They handed down their knowledge and beliefs by word of mouth and held their celebrations away from prying eyes, which I personally don't really believe. Did some superstitions survive? Yes. Did scatterings of folk stories and sacred sites remain behind? Yes. But I do not believe that this system of magic and witchcraft was passed down from person to person in secret. I, I just don't see that happening. That's just my opinion. Uh, it's what I feel is the most likely, but I don't really have any research to back that up other than just it makes sense to me. Later on that page, we start getting into misconceptions. So we get like a little sentence and then some refutation of that. The first one is witches are in league with the devil and are the same as Satanists. And then the first line of the response is witches do not believe in, let alone worship a devil. They do not believe in an evil whose purpose it is to balance out the good God, which is believe in personal responsibility. Obviously, this isn't true. There are some witches who, who believe in Satan and who may practice Satanism alongside practicing witchcraft. The difference between this and what got me so annoyed in the Silver Ravenwolf book was that she had listed Satanic witch as a type of witch and then said that they didn't exist. What this does is kind of make a broad claim about witches not believing in Satan, which I think for the most part is true. But at least it doesn't say, oh, satanic witches, ah, trick question, they don't exist, because they do. I mean, they're both denying their existence, but one is doing so much more strongly than the other. I do like that it mentions personal responsibility. Uh, then the next part is witches practice black magic. Uh, which goes into a little bit of what we call like white and black magic. Uh, but then she says, most witches try and adhere to the main rule of the craft, the Wiccan read, which obviously only applies to Wiccans. And then goes on to say, whilst there are undoubtedly a few witches who work magic for selfish reasons or to the detriment of others, the vast majority of magical workings are for the benefit of others. This is something else that I just don't agree with. Because what is a selfish reason to do magic? You can use magic to enrich your own life. A vast amount of spell books and other books put a lot of time into telling you how to do just that. I don't think that the only reason anyone should work magic is for somebody else. Because that defeats the point of you being interested in it. Because it's meant to work for you and not just so you can run around being a good fairy granting everyone else's wishes. The next one is witches sacrifice animals. There was a weird sentence in this, which was uh, witches have a great respect for nature and for the rights of others. Yes, that's fine. But they do not believe that people have rights over animals, which is a weird thing to say, because I think everyone, I mean, up until the most militant vegan will believe that we do have rights over animals. We have more rights than animals, whether that's, you know, taking their flesh and eating it or killing them to keep them away from our food that we're growing or cutting down their habitats to build our houses we have always put ourselves before animals to such an extent that it's actually ruined the environment but i don't think being a witch means that you believe that human beings have the same rights as all animals that just seems ridiculous i do understand why it's in there to again kind of allay these fears that witches are killing animals that they are involved in satan worship because that is chiefly what people thought so it's trying to put that to bed but at the same time i think it's going too far in the the goody two shoes direction then on page six we come down to another one there is no proof that witchcraft has any historical basis prior to the last 50 years to which she responds in, in the first line it is true that there is little recorded history prior to the 1950s 
Now, I understand that I'm being a little bit facetious here, because obviously she's referring to recorded history of witchcraft, but that's not what she wrote. So I read that and I was like, there was no recorded history before the 1950s. Second World War, First World War, don't know her. New phone, who this? Uh, so that just, that tickled me a little bit silly. Uh, and then on page seven, she says, a few documents have survived in private hands. And there are, of course, the church's own records, which seem to point to the continuation of the craft. After all, why bother to persecute something which you do not believe exists? Now, in my opinion, that's a real dubious view to have, because people who didn't believe in witchcraft, who didn't believe that witches were real, happily went along with it to have women and men killed so that they could claim their property because it benefited them because it scares people into the open arms of the church to have this boogeyman out there that's going to sour your milk and steal your baby so there are in fact lots of reasons to continue to persecute something that they don't believe in there was a point where belief in witchcraft was in itself a crime according to the church so this is a, a very large oversimplification and also doesn't really do a lot to prove to me that there is uh, records of witchcraft brain practice prior to the 1950s because she's saying, oh, there's these documents in the hands of private collectors and church records, but nothing substantial, just saying, oh, there is information out there, but I'm not going to share it with you. I do agree, however, with the final line in this section, which is, what does matter is whether it's valid today for those who practice it. And that's the view that I take is that it doesn't have to be centuries old to work. It doesn't have to be centuries old for you to practice it and believe in it because everything was new once anyway. And to be honest, it is quite exciting to be in the midst of something new as opposed to just following something old that's not changed for so long that it ceased to be relevant. On page 11, there's a sort of stark reminder of the kind of time when this was being written because she writes, if you practice witchcraft, you will almost certainly have to be careful about whom you tell about it and about what you tell, so you will have to learn to be very discreet. So again, it's that warning, and this is like obviously a book primarily aimed at teenagers, I guess, because it's like an introduction, but where it's not safe for you, perhaps, to be out, and I think 20 years later, it is a lot more safe, which is obviously very enjoyable, but when I was first practicing Wicca, it was when I was very young, like a, a young teenager, um, and still attending a church school, and I got in trouble, for, for being open about being uh, Wiccan. It did exist back then, this sort of idea that you did have to be secretive about it, more so than you do now. Chapter two deals with witchcraft in reality and what witches actually believe in. Of course, by witches, she means Wiccans. I feel like around the time that this, was, this book was written uh, and way back in the day when, but to be a Wiccan was the only game in town. So people who were Wiccan called themselves witches quite a lot because Wicca was basically just a name to make it sound like you weren't a witch because witch was an inflammatory word. So I feel like, although I don't agree with the conflation of the two and I know they are separate, I can understand why it exists in books that are older. It is annoying uh, and I would prefer that the book mentioned Wicca on the cover as opposed to using the word witch. Uh, for marketing reasons, I guess. But at least the blurb on the back of the book does use the word Wicca pretty much exclusively. But we get into the Wiccan core beliefs. The goddess and the god, respect for nature, freedom of spiritual choice, personal responsibility. I think respect for nature is quite a universal one, as is 
freedom of spiritual choice and personal responsibility. These are just generally good ideas. And I think that things most people would agree with uh, that don't have to be like uh, Wiccan. Obviously, there's the goddess and the god thing, the Wiccan read. Not everyone believes in that, but I think the rest of it is quite important, as is the idea that we are all our own high priest and priestess, which she goes into on page 20, that we don't need an intermediary to address the divine through, which I thought was quite interesting. Also interesting is the discussion of the rule of threefold return on page 26. She says, there is some debate between members of the craft as to whether the rule of three is really a part of traditional witchcraft or whether it has been added in recent years, perhaps in order to make people think carefully about magic they are about to perform. However, whether or not you feel there is a historical basis for the rule of three, certainly there is no harm in giving careful thought to the justification and consequence of any magic. I kind of like that idea. I'm not really a believer in the rule of three, but I am generally a believer in cause and effect because that's generally how the universe works, scientifically speaking, is my broad understanding of it. Things affect each other. You can't do something without affecting other things. But what I did find interesting is, one, she acknowledges the existence of traditional witchcraft as being a thing that predates Wicca, uh, which is interesting because it means that she sees a difference in her mind between what came before and what we practice now, which is um, a little bit more self-aware than some other parts of the book. But also this idea that the rule of three is kind of a teaching tool, which I have read in another book somewhere. I can't remember what it was, but the idea that it was used just to basically explain consequences of magic and to make people who are new to the whole concept of magic slow down a bit and take into consideration how their magic would affect other people in a way that perhaps they wouldn't do if the rule of three wasn't there because the best way that you can explain to people is even if they like the empathy to think oh maybe this might hurt someone else the idea that it might come back on them is going to be quite a powerful tool in restricting them and making them think about their actions before they do something to someone that they might regret. There's then some brief discussion of different divination methods and the purpose of divination and then literally half a page on reincarnation and the summerlands which is a wicked thing that I never really understood because people talk about oh yes we believe in reincarnation in the summerlands but there didn't seem to be anything beneath that and that was kind of one of my core reasons for, for not necessarily following Wicca anymore is that it didn't really feel like much thought had gone into the mythology of the afterlife and things like that. On page 34 there was something quite interesting about the moon cycles. It says, for women the link between them and the moon is easy to see in their monthly cycle but everyone, male or female, is subject to monthly fluctuations in energy, patience and the ability to concentrate and so on. So leaving aside the fact that all of this is obviously very binary in terms of gender, a lot of books have the idea that women, moon, cycles, periods, and that's really all they'll talk about. But this generally relates that back to men as well in some small way. It could have gone into a bit more detail, but one thing that I always think of when I think about like the moon cycle is that generally on full moons there tend to be like more police reports and more people coming into A&E and things like that. Uh, and that is because the moon does work on us in mysterious ways, men and women both. There is some very basic discussion of the triple goddess and different pantheons of gods and goddesses. The thing that I really liked about this book when I first read it, and which continues to be a big part of my belief, is that all gods and goddesses are one god and goddess, 
which is an idea that gets flack because people tend to think unless you're working with a specific god or goddess then you're not really developing that much as a witch and if you're still referring to them as like the lord and lady or the god and goddess then you're somehow at a more basic level but there are two metaphors in this which still stick with me and which I still think about when I think about deity and one is that you see the god or goddess as a mirror ball with these many many mirrors on it and each mirror is a different facet or part of that character so they have different roles that they come and play and the other one is a story about a lady called Anne um, so Anne is many things to many people. She'll be people's boss. She'll be people's employee. She'll be a daughter, but also a mother and a wife. All these various different roles. And although some of those roles might get put aside, like when her parents die, she'll still be a daughter, but it won't be as prominent in her life. As we go through like the cycle of the year, different facets become more important. Um, and it's just that idea of to some people the goddess is like a mother figure to some people the goddess is a powerful warrior and both of those things can be true but they're just for different people at different times i also like and i'm not going to harp on this section because i did skip over it a lot the eight sabbats chapter where she introduces the sabbats now most books that i've read give like rituals to perform at the sabbats um they give you like a script to do or they talk about what kind of magical workings and things you could do i liked her versions better so on page 53 just uh she says i worked as a solitary for many years and have celebrated the festivals with anything from work done in the garden to silent meditation on a walk through the woods and further suggestions are given for each individual sabbath which i'm not going to read because who has the time but basically this idea that a sabbat isn't just a, a thing you have to do like dragging yourself away from your family and your friends to go sit in a room and eat cookies in a circle and pretend like you're celebrating a day which for you might have very little meaning because you're not a farmer but it's about engaging with the natural world and seeing its passing and its rhythms uh, and engaging with your part in all of that and that can be as simple as going for a walk at Samhain and, and watching the, the dying back of the plant life or it can be like walking around in Imbol and seeing the the new shoots coming the the warmth coming back to the air which signifies that spring is here it can be as simple as that and it doesn't have to take place in a circle so again that's a, that's a concept that I really owe to this book chapter five becoming a witch talks about like the different types of witches and dedication initiations and how covens work in sort of the barest bones possible because this is an introductory book now what i found interesting about this is that it does give types of witches and, and it lists gardenarians and it lists alexandrians and those we know are types of wiccans but it also lists traditionals and i thought that initially this was a, ref a reference to traditional witchcraft which is kind of a movement that we see more and more nowadays or at least i see more of uh, i guess it's mainly because of who i follow on twitter but there we go but it wasn't actually talking about that what it says is another term for traditional witch is instinctual these witches are those whose learning and practice cannot be easily traced through either family or coven practice and i'm just going to stop there and talk about that sentence for a minute because i weirdly kind of think about some of the things that i practice as being instinctual there's like a kind of a part of you that says 
I should put these things in the middle of the circle and then I should have this picture and I should use it in this way. And that's generally how I conduct my rituals and spells now as opposed to having them pre-planned out. For example, recently I was doing a spell for justice. I was preparing herb ingredients and I cut my hand quite badly and a lot of blood went like all over my hand. And some dripped into the mixture that I was making and I thought, this is part of the spell now. This is part of the sacrifice. I'm seeking justice for a violent act and therefore pain and blood is going to be part of that. And I ended up using that blood in the ritual in a variety of ways. And that was sort of an instinct of mine. However, she does go on to say, there are some who say that there is no such thing as a traditional witch. However, there are those who also believe that the instinctual witch is in fact one who has been reincarnated with the craft knowledge from a previous life. Either way, there is no real way to explain how a very few people seem to be born with more craft learning than they could have acquired through their study in this life. And I take issue with that because I do not for one second think, oh, I was a witch in a previous life and that's why I do things the way I do. But I do think that people, as in the whole of humanity, have a leaning towards the ritual and the magical, as you can see in different independent cultures all around the world, develop these systems of ritual, magic, um, ancestor worship, different religions. We have a tendency towards this as human beings. This is just a part of who we are. And the fact that I am able to, for myself, create rituals and create um, something that has meaning for me in terms of magic and magical rites is just part of being a person and my interest in witchcraft is what frames that for me. So I do not believe that to do this and to be instinctual about your craft as opposed to accepting what is prescribed means that you are reincarnated and to be honest I'm not sure I even really believe in past lives and it annoys me when people say that they have special knowledge or things because of who they were in a past life or that the only way to be a real witch is, is to have been one and reincarnated so that irritated me but the first part of that was definitely thought-provoking. She then talks about hedge witches and solitaries. Solitaries I feel is not a type of witch Solitaries is a method of practice. Like you can be a solitary hedge witch or a solitary gardenarian, etc., etc., but it, it's not really a thing in and of itself, I don't think. There's a little bit of stuff about covens, which I don't really feel qualified to go in on, but it did seem to make sense. She also provides a ritual of self dedication, so you can declare your intent to, to follow witchcraft, or I guess in this case, Wicca, uh, to the goddess and the god. And I've actually performed this. Um, ritual several times like for both myself and for some other people uh, and I do quite like it uh, and it's sort of a, a solitary thing so again that's quite nice to have in there. One thing I did take issue with was right after this on page 115 she writes although there is always the considerable temptation to have a permanent altar this really is not only unnecessary but also a rather tactless way of advertising your beliefs. It should not be possible for anyone other than another witch to learn uh, to know that you have been practicing the craft, which I understand where this is coming from because, again, of the time this book was written. But I do feel like making that kind of statement without the caveat of it may be unwise to do this if you were in a certain situation. To just say point blank, this is a tactless thing to do and no one should be able to tell you you're practicing witchcraft. 
it's a little bit dictatory. And I say this as someone who has a permanent altar. So I think it's fine if other people can tell that you practice witchcraft. I think we've gone quite the other way now where some people look like they practice witchcraft and they don't. So uh, that's quite fun in a weird way. On page 116, she does mention uh, things being in line with the old craft and then also the modern revival. Again, hinting at an understanding that Wicca and witchcraft today is not what may have been practiced in the far distant past. There are these kind of fragmented moments of acknowledgement that that is the case, but they seem to go directly against what we were told in the introduction. So um, I think this is a good book that shows that generally the confusion over what Wicca is and isn't. And then chapter six, we get magic and we get told how magic works and correspondences with the elements and various other things. Also, she goes through the different kinds of spells and what to be careful of and what to focus on, uh, like love magic, uh, things that can go wrong with that, and, and money magic as well. Those are the two examples we see most places. She also references clients when she talks about magic. I feel like she's misusing the word and what she really means is like querence, like people who have asked you for help and not people who are charging, but it always kind of annoys me when we jump into spellcraft and instantly start thinking of doing it for fun and profit. Uh, chapter 7, Spellcraft and Herb Law, is about making spells happen in, in practical terms as opposed to just talking about magic as a sort of concept. Now, on page 132, there was a line that got me thinking, and it is, in order to make your magic work, you need to be able to direct focused energy at your intended recipient. And I've also been listening to uh, a book on... Uh, sort of ritual magic on audible and that was also talking about focusing and directing energy and those two things just kind of hit together in my mind because who decided that who decided that you have to raise energy and then direct that energy and that's how magic works because I feel like I read that in every single book and for the longest time I've thought that's the way that you do it but why? And I know everyone's answers are probably going to be, oh, because that's what Crowley said, or that's what this book said, going back and back and back. But okay, so that's the case for them. But I feel like magic is more of a personal thing than that. And this feels kind of like a one size fits all situation. But, but that is just a sort of thought that I had while I was going through the book. Then we go through a little bit of like circle casting, raising energy, things like that. And we get into some spells. The spells are all pretty basic and I'm not going to lie, kind of boring. They are to banish personal negativity, to banish negativity from a room or cleanse and protect an area, to create a talisman, to attract new friends or a partner, reconciling differences, healing, and uh, that's basically it. I get that these are all fairly simple, very inoffensive spells to teach new people and to show that wicker is all full of love and light and protecting and healing people uh, but they do seem to not have any sort of concrete results in the way that i sort of see spells as, as having now usually it's like i want to acquire this thing or i want to be more lucky or things that you can sort of set your hat at and then achieve whereas these just seem kind of a, a bit wishy-washy to be honest then there's a frightfully small section on herbs like rosemary, peppermint, chamomile, and just a little bit about what they can be used for in terms of herbal healing and magic. And then a little section on empowering herbs to use in magic. And then we get into chapter eight, Out of the Room Closet, which is all about how to confront 
the idea that people might find out that you're a witch. Again, this section is a little bit dated, uh, but she says on page 169, I would remind you that as witches, we do not thrust our beliefs into other people's lives. And that later on in that paragraph, that they may not want to know. I think that's kind of an important point, is that there seems to be this fascination with I'm going to do what I want and everyone else has to agree with that. And maybe that's not true. Maybe there are some people who just don't want to know what you're doing. They don't really care about witchcraft and you should just leave them alone and not kind of attack them with this idea for attention. But I'm not saying that everyone does. I'm just saying I've seen some very weird posts on Facebook, okay, and this reminded me of them. But she does say to be honest if questioned, which, to be honest, is a better piece of advice than in the Silver Ravenwolf book where it was like, try and distract them from the topic. Um, just, yeah, you should be honest if people ask you questions about it. And also that there is no need to see a potential confrontation in every passing comment. Which, again, like, some people are just going to make jokes because the idea of someone really being a witch is funny to them. And I can see how it would be. But you don't have to, like, get up in a soapbox and go all, like, anti-defamation work on them just because they, they made a joke about broomsticks. Some people are just going to make jokes. That's that's fair. And then she does say on page 171, Do not, however tempting, run down another spiritual beliefs. Rather maintain that there is plenty of room for many different belief systems. So this book isn't really as anti-other faiths, as anti-Christianity as other books. It does mention that Christianity kind of stamped out uh, the old ways, which to a certain extent it did replace the the pagan traditions that came before it. Um, but it doesn't kind of harp on about it and say that all Christians nowadays are evil. Just let them do what they're going to do. Uh, she then provides a letter that you can copy out or um, reinterpret in order to have the talk with people which is uh, fair enough. And then we get into chapter nine, getting in touch, which is all about finding a coven, uh, finding local craft events, using the interwebs and uh, various other things. And then it just gives some addresses, uh, some glossary terms, and then also some suggestions for further reading. What I did find interesting is that right at the end of the glossary, it says Wicker and Wiccan and goes on to define them as this. Wicca has been largely adopted as a more user-friendly term for witchcraft. Personally, I do not describe myself as a Wiccan, as it simply leads to the question, what does that mean? And then you will sooner or later end up leading to the word witch. There are some that consider uh, that those who call themselves Wiccans are less traditional than witches. So again, it kind of gives the reason for that conflation between Wicca and witchcraft, which happens in these older books and which seems to drive modern people up the wall, especially if they didn't read these books because they weren't practicing back then or they weren't born back then. And they don't really seem to understand all their experience of, of Wicca is people coming into their mentions on Instagram and going, but the rule of three. And they seem to want to lash out at that by making those two things very different. But at the same time, way back when, witch was just wicker. That, that's what it was to people, mostly. And that is how you would explain it to people who asks, well, what does that mean when you said Wiccan? Because the term witch has its own connotations. So that about wraps it up for the Real Witches Handbook. As I said, this was like my first book. So obviously I'm biased towards it and it will always have a special little place in my heart. Does it get everything right? No. Does it get many things wrong? 
Yes. But I feel like at the core of it, there is good advice, albeit wrapped up in some slightly dated explanations for things, and slightly dated terminology. Other Wicker 101 books that I'll just say to ride a silver broomstick, because that's the one I'm thinking of. But to my mind, when I've gone through them, there has been quite poor advice couched in kind of antagonistic teenage rebellion tone and with just some uh, some of the same problems with uh, conflated witchcraft and wicker mixed in i feel like what this has going for it at the very least is that it is clear basic information about wicker and it does use the word wicker more than other books that are definitely still talking about wicker but refuse to call it that and also it provides some good advice to in general to people who want to get into practicing witchcraft about how to tackle it with friends and family how to go about learning about it what covens are generally like and that underneath all that there is some good advice and it is set out in quite an easy to understand way so if you're looking for a beginner book on wicca i definitely recommend this one if you're looking for a beginner book on witchcraft this probably isn't the book for you because it's about Wicca. But at the same time, I think it also has enough stuff in there about how magic works, about how to use the elements and the sabbats and things like that, which are also present in modern witchcraft without like the Wicca element. So that's in there as well. You just need to go into it and kind of sort the, the relevant from the irrelevant and make your own mind up about things which is basically what I say for all books, because you're not going to agree with 100% of it all of the time, unless you wrote it. Maybe not even then. <laughs> so it's been pretty nice to have a look back at this book. I hope you all have enjoyed this review. And if you can think of any other books uh, that you might want me to have a look at, um, especially if they're Kate West ones, because honestly, I haven't read many of hers. I think I had the kitchen one and the craft one, but I haven't read the other ones so uh, let me know which is your favorite you can do so by twitter or the comment section on the youtube version of the podcast and don't forget to go over to instagram and follow me at a witch fix podcast which is hard to say at speed but today i managed it so that you can get a little sneak peek at books that i might be reviewing soon the contents of mystery boxes that i've unboxed and what has happened to some of the things that i've had in those mystery boxes and what they looked out um, what they looked like when they were melted put in a bath or otherwise used in the way that they were meant to and in the meantime i'll see you in the next one bye